This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. We have an exceptional lineup here today, and this could be part one of a two-part series with the Wild Turkey Science podcast, Dr. Marcus Lashley, Dr. Will Goolsby, and um, Adam, are you excited? <laughs> you gave him an, an, an end, Adam. Um, I'm I'm very excited. Um, you know, this is a uh, this is one we've been talking about for a while. We've been uh, listening to these podcasts since they started releasing them, and uh, there's been a lot of great chatter on social media about these uh, different podcasts that they've done, different topics they've covered, and um, as any good podcast will do it stirs up your uh your thinking cap and uh trying to when you hear these you go okay how can i apply this what applies to me and um and so we have so many questions but we have so little time in in regards to if we ask every question that came to mind during these podcasts we'd never get anything done so we're going to try to hit the high notes and um yeah let's get kicking it all right I'll uh, let Dr. Marcus Lashley and Will just give a quick introduction to themselves. Hopefully everyone is already familiar with them, but guys, go ahead and then uh, we'll, we'll jump into the uh, actual meat of the content. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. So uh, this is Marcus Lashley talking. I'm a professor at the University of Florida and uh, I uh, co-host, as, as uh, you've already said, the Wild Turkey Science Podcast, and I do a lot of work. I'd say my specialty area is definitely habitat-focused, and I have done a, a lot of work with habitat management in various places across the South, uh, and I've done some work outside the South, but most of it has been focused in the South. done a ton with, with uh, civil culture and fire in forest systems, but also a lot of field management type stuff. And most of my work focuses on deer and or turkeys. So, uh, you know, I'm really, I, I grew up hunting and that led me down this path to get to where I am now and trying to give back to the resource and think about things that people care about that own land and uh, figure out how to do that kind of work and get it to people so that they can use it. Yeah, and uh, I'm Will Goolsby. I'm a professor at Auburn University, and apparently some people outside of the Southeast don't, or that aren't football fans don't know where that is, uh, so that's in <laughs> Alabama. And, um, you know, like Marcus, a lot of my research is focused on the Southeast, and a lot of my research is focused on particularly forest management for game species with, you know, particular emphasis on deer and turkey habitat. Um, but some of my recent stuff, especially as my research has become more turkey-centric, has forced me to branch out in a multitude of directions, you know, and in the podcast has as well. I think Marcus would agree that we've been reading articles on everything from toxins and diseases to, of course, habitat um, to predator prey dynamics, you name it. Um, we've really had to diversify to, to cover a lot of these issues that are particularly relevant to turkeys right now and that people are interested in. 
Um, and also like Marcus, you know, I came to this field as a passionate hunter and I wanted to find out, you know, how could I help people, um, accomplish their goals related to game species management in particular. And, um, actually went into it kind of wanting to stop at the master's level and become a consultant or, or manage a, a large private tract kind of like you guys do, but, um, really enjoyed the research. And so, that's where I've ended up. And, and I try to get that information to the hands of the people that value it the most. Absolutely. I love it. Um, okay. So hopefully everyone is familiar with the wild turkey science podcast. Um, if you haven't, make sure you are tuning into those podcasts, phenomenal research-based information, that's super solid. Um, and, and comes from a varied sources of people researching the wild turkey, but First and foremost, what we want to do is is jump into the podcast that you guys did with Dr. Craig Harper from the University of Tennessee um, and, and talk about kind of the high points from there. And, you know, Adam and I, we we have had a lot of discussions on the back end of some of the points that um, were brought up into that conversation and, and some just staggering numbers. And um, it seemed like a lot of people, maybe social media we're really trying to focus in on, um, you know, aspects of the podcast that, um, let's say we're, we're important, but really the meat and the potatoes of that podcast hasn't really been talked a ton about. So, um, it, it specifically in regards to the amount of brood rearing cover, specifically early successional vegetation and or shrubland that was present on the landscape and the selectiveness that hens used to basically put their put their nests there. So can you guys recap some of those numbers? And then we're going to discuss just how important those numbers actually are in regards to the success. Yeah, sure. You want to take it, Marcus, or? Go right ahead. Will. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So just to, just to start out by providing a little bit of background on that study, it was implemented um, between the university of Tennessee and Tennessee wildlife resources agency, TWRA. And their primary objective in that, in that research was actually to study the effects of season opening date on Turkey reproduction. Um, so the basic experimental framework was that they established five counties, three of those counties in Tennessee had declining harvest, the other two did not, and they delayed the season in those declining counties to coincide with the peak in nest initiation, um, because that has been kind of the, the heuristic or the rule of thumb um, that a lot of people think is probably needed to address the problem with early early intensive harvest of males, of gobblers, um, if that is an issue in these populations. So TWRA wanted information on that. Um, they delayed, like I said, they delayed the opening date in those three counties where harvest was declining. Um, so far, and the study is still ongoing, but so far they've collected data from over 400 hens um, who were responsible for laying uh, six, about 600 nests. And they found that the hatchability of those nests did not change in response to delaying the season opening and the incubation timing didn't change either. Um, but they also, alongside that primary objective, of course, especially with, with Dr. Harper being involved in the project, they're really interested in also collecting data on habitat factors that influence turkey production. Um, and so 
they were looking at where hens were nesting relative to the overall composition of the landscape. And they found that only about 7% total of the landscape was suitable or what we would consider suitable nesting or brooding cover. Um, so we're talking about herbaceous plant communities or, sh or shrubby plant communities. Um, so that added up to 77, I'm sorry, 7%. I wish it was 70% <laughs> <That'd be laughs> of, of the landscape <laughs> in their study area. But what's so powerful about that is even though it was so limited, almost half, it was actually 45% of the nest in that study were initiated in that cover type. Furthermore, taking it a step further, so that's, that's already indicating to you that, or it should be, that hens are disproportionately, I mean, that's an understatement, I think, uh, selecting, overtly. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's inarguable that they are viewing that area, those areas, those early succession of shrub and plant communities as a cue for this is a place where I am more likely to successfully rear a brood, right? Um, and the data indicate that nest success was greater there than any of the other cover types. It was about 35%, um, which is much greater than the average of 20 to 25% we're seeing across a lot of these Southeastern studies. And it would have been even greater, except for the fact that 12% of the nests that were initiated in those areas were destroyed by mowing. Ugh. So, so that would, <laughs> would have been roughly 47, 48% success had those mm -hmm. nests not been mowed over in the early right. successional shrubland type areas. In That's an area right. that was still only 7% of the landscape. And well, what's and, in, go ahead, Marcus. Well, I was going to add to that just to kind of uh, illustrate this in a different way. I, I shared a manuscript that they have published now recently, with, well, when it came out. And uh, it was the initial thing that they published from the study, but they actually went in and looked at the vegetation associated, the structure associated with nests, and then modeled how it affected the success of that nest. And uh, I'm happy to share this with anybody, and I, I've shared it on Instagram before, uh, but I, I don't remember the specific numbers exactly, but it equated to about 2% higher survival of the nest per day hmm. and well in the best vegetation which would have been associated with the seven percent compared to the worst situation which frankly was the majority of the rest of the landscape uh so we're talking about two percent of the day uh, you know per day and if you actually multiply that out we go from that low 20 something percent nest success on the poor areas to up in the mid 40s, like Will just alluded to what it would have been if you didn't mow down the all the early succession during nesting. Uh, you know, we would get up into the high 40s. And that's that two that's what two percent per day over the course of that the life of that nest equates to. You're mm -hmm. you're doubling the success. Mm -hmm of nest when and when we get up around 50 percent, that that's extreme yeah that's and i think very turkeys. high and i think another important point to make here is that you know as we see turkey harvest declining in a lot of these states especially throughout the southeast and everybody's looking for a reason you know a stat that comes up a lot is nest success rates and historic studies you know that were done decades ago compared to the current ones and how that's changed over time it's almost been cut in half and so when you, mm. but when you look at the nest success that, that turkeys were enjoying in these areas that we've been talking about, 
it's right back up there with those historic rates. So, Almost suggesting that we should have more of it, right? <laughs> I mean, so one could would could imagine that's the case. I, I would <laughs> say I would say screaming, not <laughs> suggesting. So I think this is an important point about this. We're we're trying to figure out what's going on with turkey populations, and we kind of have two competing ways that we can go about this. Right, one is to take away opportunity, I mm-hmm, move the mm-hmm. season date, reduce bag limit. Uh, you know, shorten the season, those kinds of things. And the other way is to increase productivity. And I, for one, would much rather do that. So sure. we're we're seeing a glaring issue with these studies. And I know we're we're focused on this one, but I just want to point out we've talked to the lead researcher from North Carolina. We just aired that episode. He said that brood rearing cover is essentially non-existent across North Carolina. Uh, there was a South Carolina study, it's a thesis that alluded to the same thing. We're in single digit proportions from that study. Mike Chamberlain said basically in his experience across the South with a b- bunch of studies, brood rearing cover is the most limiting factor. That's also my experience. It's pretty rare that I go anywhere and see mm-hmm. what I would call high quality brooding cover. And, you know, that we can argue about what to do about that. But that, to me, is indicating a really severe problem that should be affecting productivity substantially. No doubt. Uh, so when you guys launched this podcast, it wasn't like you crawled out from under a rock. Like, you've been in research for several years. But now, you know, from the outside looking in, it seems that you guys, at least on social media, are way more, or not maybe way more, but you're more outspoken or posting about all these different research projects that you've you've read into over the years. I've heard you talk about research that's done in in uh, Europe, um, all across the United States from different species, not just game species. And so when you've started that, I don't know if this is if this is like you guys are really into the research now because you're doing the podcast, but did you previously, I know you, you knew it was a problem, but now that you're starting to see these, uh, this research come out with early secession being so limited, were you, I mean, you probably assumed it, but is it even more blatantly obvious that that is a massive hole in our production of, of game species, wild turkey specifically? I think for me, you know, I, I have been, I didn't have the platform to sing this tune, but I have been thinking about that and saying it. And I know Will has because he and I have talked about it way before the podcast uh, ever came to be, uh, that this is something that's pretty rare. And I and until just recently, I had not seen that quantified. What I was mm-hmm. perceiving from my, my own eye, you know, going around the landscape, I had not heard that captured in a metric where it was measured so that I could realize how extreme the issue was. But, uh, you know, it, it was more confirmatory from me. Yeah. It's it's worse than I thought, <laughs> to, yeah. to be honest, uh, when you quantify it. But, uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense. The places yeah. that we use for early succession, those are really good places for alternative land uses and really easy to convert into those alternative land uses. And, uh, you know, we've pretty well done that across the landscape. Yeah, I think it was one of those things that, you know, you know, in the back of your mind that it's an issue, right? 
But then when you're confronted by that data, especially the kind of data that's coming out of the Tennessee study, it just, I don't know, it takes it from, from being in the back of your mind to the forefront with alarm bells going off. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and Marcus and I recorded another episode yesterday that'll, it'll drop sometime in the next couple of weeks, depending on when this episode with you guys airs, it may be out uh, by the time it does. But um, anyway, you know, one of the points that I made to him is, you know, this is when we talk specifically about brooding cover, it looks a lot like what Northern Bob whites need, you know, Mm -hmm. and the Northern Bob white (laughs) community has been shouting this from the rooftops for decades that we need more of this cover type. It's just, you know, we haven't thought of it as deeply when it comes to turkeys because they are generalists if you just look at the areas that they use on an annual basis. But it just so happens that this brooding cover, this early succession with herbaceous plant communities and bare ground is so important to what happens to those populations throughout the rest of the year because it's our pulp production factory. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Chris Mormon even said, you know, from his viewpoint – that is the most specialized vegetation structure and you know composition that they have in their their life cycle. Mm-hmm. That that brooding cover is the most specific uh, type of of vegetation, you know that uh, that they need. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's important to reflect. <clears throat> you know, on. I, I look at it. Let's say from a maybe a, a different way to kind of tease these numbers out, but it's like, imagine if you were looking at this from like a business angle or like a kind of a supply versus demand, like the supply of this habitat or, or vegetation is so limited on the, the landscape, but the demand is, is incredibly high from the Turkey standpoint. So it's a supply versus demand issue, but essentially, you know, going back to the numbers and I think I want people to like really resonate with these numbers and slow down, like camp out in their mind is 45% of the hens selected seven and a half percent of that landscape. So again, you think about it, let's say 45% of a profit came from seven and a half percent of like the way you spent your time on, on a business. Wouldn't you just go and spend more time on that seven and a half percent and double down on that? You'd increase your profit. So mm-hmm. supply demand, like think about it a little bit differently. Like this not necessarily context of hen selecting this landscape, but just those numbers are staggering when you can apply them or think about them in a different perspective. Um, but like, it, it's so important to, to produce this type of landscape. And I think of it like a, I guess, you know, you, you hear those numbers and you're like, oh, it's so disappointing that only seven and a half percent of that landscape is, is in that suitable habitat. But one, it can be created relatively easy because these are annual species that we're trying yeah. to promote. That's well, not that, hard. That's the but, other thing I was going to say of all of the vegetation communities that you're trying to create, as long as you have some area to do it, you can get this very fast. Yeah. For sure. Relative to other things. Like you don't need any lag time. You could literally go from not having it to having it in the same year. Yeah, exactly. But I think one thing that's important to point out about it, and this is probably gets back to why it's so limiting across the landscape, is that it compared to the other vegetation communities that turkeys use, this one is the one that is least likely to happen accidentally. Mm hmm. You know, you you can, right. You can accidentally get it. You know, you can accidentally allow an area to succeed to mature forest. You can accidentally have shrublands all over the landscape, but having 
herbaceous plant communities with bare ground is one of those ones that has to be intentional. Sure, it may pop up for a couple of years after a site is newly cleared, but without that continued disturbance, you're not going to maintain it long term. Agreed. Agreed. That's a that's a good point. Um, you know, I, you you know got- it's it, it's disappointing to say, hey, seven and a half percent of the landscape's that. But on the flip side, what you said earlier, Will, is you look at the production out of those areas, mm-hmm. and you're right back to the that old mm-hmm. research and and the successfulness of those nests, and that's a super big positive for me. Is like mm-hmm. what what was producing these amazing amount of, of turkeys in their late nineties, two thousands. Um, and that success rate we can achieve if this is present yeah. uh, enough on the landscape. Yeah. Um, Adam, I know you were going to say something there too. Yeah. My question was, have you done any research? And I know you've probably got anecdotal evidence, um, but on properties that have an abundance of early secession and then what were the Turkey population? What was the Turkey population doing on those, on those sites? Yeah, that that is a great question, and I, I get asked something along these lines quite a bit. Like, how much do we need? Mm-hmm. Okay, a seven percent, but what does it need to be? Fourteen percent? Does it need to be twenty five percent? And and the short answer to that is, I I'm, I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it needs to be more than seven. I'm pretty confident in that. <laughs> if we take uh, it, but... and, and to follow up to that, Marcus, if we take it to fourteen. Does that remaining, you know, fifty five percent of hens nest in that cover type too? Because yeah. one of the con- the problems, and and Will and I talk about this almost on a daily basis, this kind of stuff. But the hens' behavior, some of the work uh, that Chamberlain and and some others have talked about, suggests that the hens are essentially uh, competing with each other for space. They don't like yeah. nesting next to each other. So if when you restrict down where there is to nest to such a little thing, what do you expect to happen? Most of the oh, hens yeah. get pushed out into something they don't want to nest in, and then you end up with weak nest site selection is what a bunch of the studies say. But there isn't any, they don't have a choice, right? That's really Absolutely. what we're getting at at that point. So like Will was just saying, if you double that, do we now re- relieve them of that? that issue where they don't want to nest next to each other. So now everybody or a large portion, like, is that a linear relationship as you increase percentages? Do you just continually increase a higher percentage of the hens get to nest there? I I don't know that we have any of that data uh, to speak directly about that, but you can make a pretty strong inference that when it's that little of the landscape, that the uh, aggression or or whatever that mechanism is between hens is probably causing a lot of failure because a lot of hens don't get to choose good stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I think so, of, uh, sorry, go ahead, Will. Adam, I was just going to say to directly answer your question, I'm trying to address that in Alabama right now. We've got a study area on my, uh, my TFT, Alabama Wildlife Federation, state chapter of NWTF, uh, study that is taking place on a private property. I haven't calculated it yet, but I would estimate just from my familiarity with the property that probably 30 to 40% of that site is either high quality nesting or brooding cover. Um, so, yeah. but it's, it's probably going to take us several years to get that data set because guess what? On a property with outstanding habitat management, it's really hard to catch turkeys because <laughs> they have a lot <laughs> of alternative food sources. <laughs> there's food, yeah, there's so food everywhere. There's a confounding issue, right? Uh, that I was going to say actually the same number being on 
several properties that are flush with turkeys. In some cases, they're the only property around. You know, they're yeah. an isol isolated thing. We're in a similar scenario where I would say it's it's more than twenty five percent that I would characterize this high quality nesting and brooding, but that usually is skewed toward nesting cover. Yeah. Sure. And I think, and I think that that is a useful thought experiment, if you will, to use where you look at landscapes like places where Marcus is working in South Florida that are dominated by these prairies. And then you go to places like South Texas where, you know, the limited annual rainfall basically keeps mm-hmm. succession in those earlier States. And you see that when they have conducive weather, that pulse just come out of the ground, right? Yeah, I think right. that's the term that right. we've used in several podcasts, yeah. right, Marcus? Brett, Brett said they literally like just emerge out of the ground. <laughs> they sprout. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds magical. Like they're, yeah. they're like a little pea pod or something, and you put a little water on them, and then they expand into the you – know. <laughs> I think that's literally how it is in South Texas. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, the other thing is you get a good rainfall year, that's four inches of rain there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's crazy An- another thing that while you're talking about like that that density or uh the amount of seven and a half percent of this early successional vegetation shrubland the process that was going through in my own head too was like we know that that's suitable that's selected by wild turkey hens to place nest and to bring broods too but i also think about that in regards to predators and we're and this is part one of, of a two-part series here we're doing with these guys we're getting the predators later on in part two but while we're right here i think about it from their advantage to be able to try and be successful at interrupting nesting success and brooding if they're concentrating and seeking out um, and hunting these areas from a predator standpoint you have to go to seven and a half percent of the landscape to find nesting turkeys and we're still having that success on on the nests um from from taking you know uh, eggs into a hatching state that's pretty amazing too because you think that would be super concentrated from predators they could go and wipe out seven and a half percent of the landscape Mm -hmm. but that habitat is is suitable so i think if you if you were to increase that to 14 15 percent of the landscape um just how much more success would you have yeah yeah i think that's a great point and it's an indicator that you know, vegetation is mitigating the effect of predation, right? Sure, darn right. And, intu- and intuitively, when we start talking about this whole habitat predator prey relationship, we know that there are areas that have no turkey nest predators that don't have turkeys either because they're not turkey habitat, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the most extreme example. And, um, you know, when you go from there and you start, you know, you start adding some predators back, but you've got more habitat and then you, you know, you arrive in a place where you've got, you know, 30 or 40% of the landscape in this quality cover for reproduction, then, you know, that you're going to have a huge mitigation or dampening effect on the impact that predators are able to have on the species. Yeah, and I I don't want to go get too far into the weeds, but I, I think that some of this is not very intuitive to people because they don't think about there being many ways to die. Hmm. So for that pole in particular, but the nest could be the same way, like predation is one way to die. Sure. Right. So the, a lot of the other ways to die are also inextricably linked to habitat. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for example, exposure is really important when the pole is young and it can't thermoregulate. If it's exposed to temperature temperatures that are 
lethal either because they're too cold or too warm. Some of that is being mitigated by the structure of the vegetation that it is foraging in. So not only that, it's also linked to predation because that structure is also keeping them from being exposed to predators, right? And then there's Absolutely. other, you know, it just starts to build up because we're also producing alternative prey for the predators in many cases. We're also creating Absolutely. poorer habitat quality for the predator in terms of its searchability for prey, particularly for our prey species of interest, in this case, turkeys. Like it just starts to snowball. And then mm -hmm. people, you know, when you tell people, oh, removing predators is not necessarily going to equate to more turkeys. Well, that's because if habitat has a, it's poor, there's all these other ways to die and they just become compensatory. You either just, Correct. you get eaten by the predator or you just die of heat stress anyway. So we had so a, that nineties that game of Oregon trail, twist your ankle, die of hypothermia. <laughs> you can't ever yeah. make it to the West coast because yeah. you die of something along the yeah. way. And all those dark river crossings. <laughs> yeah, dying a river crossing. Like there's just, or, you know, oh, several spoiled. years. Several <laughs> meat spoiled. You starved to death. Yeah. Right. And, well, yeah, uh, that, and that's, I mean, that's unfortunately the life of a turkey. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like and, it, there's everything. There's, there's just a million reasons to die. And a listener made this point to us and I thought it was a really powerful way to think about it is that we have to switch from this mindset of thinking that predator management is just confined to trapping and re start realizing that habitat management is a part of predator management as well. Yeah. And I, I've been me, digging Adam, around I, even. Oh, sorry about that. Well, I was going to say, Adam, that reminds me of the podcast we did last year or the year before, I believe it was with uh, Kyle talking about how to like tune your property into a way that that deters the predator to mm -hmm. basically be on your property. Things that like, let's say deer managers are doing to make it more likely that um, small mammals are going to be on your property. Just favoring I, I think them. the podcast was titled how to increase raccoons on your property. Yes. That one. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it, well, it just I, is a domino effect. Go ahead, Marcus. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add to this that, you know, we start to think about all the ways to die and then you, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think after people think of it that way, why the habitat would have a bigger effect size. But we also have, I've been digging around the literature even more since we've been talking about it, trying to see the relative effect size of habitat on productivity. And it, it it's pretty clear, I think, from the literature from a wide variety of species that you have a bigger effect on productivity by addressing limitations in habitat as opposed to focusing on, you know, more directly on predator management. You can still, even so, have a bigger effect on predation by focusing on habitat in many cases. You mm -hmm. like you reduce predation more by improving cover than you do by reducing predator density. Mm, great point. Great point. Yeah, fa fantastic. I think Adam, you know, if if we are honest with ourselves, there's a lot of people who pro who have said or commented on on our stuff of, you, know, you guys just, you know, you're not open to trapping. You hate trapping. Mm -hmm. This and that. It's like, no, I just I know that there's power, and here are numbers to associate the power of having the appropriate amount yeah. and and spatially as well the d distribution of those habitat and vegetation types on the landscape. Yeah. It can do, and it does achieve so many more things than just mm -hmm. 
this this linear one to one predator to a hen or predator to right. a, a nest um predation like it's it's more than that and that's a great mm-hmm. way to put it so thank you for hammering that home it yeah. it is well and it, it is habitat driven right well and i think you know i just uh I'm, i know we're kind of getting on the predator topic now and we're going to have a you know full part two on this but i just shared a paper recently on social media specifically that tested this with quail. And when I think, like we just said earlier, one of you said that quail overlap a lot with poult rear rearing cover in terms of habitat uh, mm-hmm. demands. So I shared that one for that reason specifically, also because a lot of people don't have the capability to do widespread manipulation of habitat. So, uh, you know, in that study, they were basically looking at trapping alone versus habitat alone versus the two combined. And I think this is the the take home point that I want to make with this is no, there was no response to trapping alone. There was a response to habitat alone, which was in that study, uh, not that much work. Mm -hmm. And then when you put the two together, you do get an additional bump from the trapping. So that it's not that predator removal can't have any benefit there is evidence in sure. many species that it can have some benefit, but it typically is only realized when you're doing habitat work. Yeah, there's there's an order to operations, right? And I think that's what's super important. And the message that we've been trying to promote and discuss for a couple of years now is like, hey, you can do it and we're not against it, but mm-hmm. it's going to have limited results unless you first address the main issue and problem, but do it when that's in place and it'll be wonderful right mm-hmm. have awesome if you have success. a weekend in january or february and you can only go up to your farm that one weekend you're probably going to be better off trying to do some dormant season disking or try to do a prescribed fire or try to thin some timber rather than try mm-hmm. to trap mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I, that that research or that paper that you shared marcus was like to me it was uh if we're talking about the field border um mm-hmm. project where a lot of times I've seen this is becoming a, a common question. I noticed it that Matt shared a video from a consult he did in Ohio, Turkeys for Tomorrow, shared it on their page. Mm-hmm. Comment yeah, being, what well, do you want? It looks like you've got that row going right through the middle of it. How are you going to mitigate predators who are just going to run right through the good habitat? Or, you know, if you have 30 yards of quality uh, field border, can a predator just run on the downwind side of that? And And it seems like that that's becoming an even more common question. And and Mm -hmm. my response has always been, it's better to have it than not have it at all. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think you're right. And, you know, for, we also conflate the risk of a nest in that kind of scenario versus the risk of poults being reared in that kind of scenario. You know, we've got a mobile species that can, Mm. or or species, a, a mobile individual that can, actively hide and try to escape versus a nest that's you know just sitting there and can't can't not sit there right so uh you know in the studies that we have seen and this is not specific to turkeys it's for drawing from the the broader bird literature the times that we see the arrangement of vegetation causing some issues with predation is usually related specifically to the nest or fledglings that are anchored to a nest so I have not seen that from the poult rearing side of things, but quail, I think, are a pretty good indicator in that study that that I shared 
the borders that they put in were 10 to 15 foot wide. <laughs> and they still saw a population level effect on quail mm -hmm. populations. For yeah. the, fall, the fall call counts, they saw a measurable effect in that study from 10 to 15 wide strips. That's very achievable. Around the fields. I mean, it, you know, that we ought to be able to do that. And that, you know, you bring up an interesting point when you talk about the nesting. And I want to kind of spin into another podcast I heard you guys do on the Primo's hunting podcast with Lake and Jordan discussing successful nesting um, and the problems that may occur near and around bait sites. Mm -hmm. um, that seemed, that podcast was one that I, I wish I would have seen every turkey hunter in the country share that podcast because it's just the, the results very shocking. And mm -hmm. also at the same time, something that many, many, many people are, are guilty of. Mm -hmm. And that's baiting throughout much of the year. Yeah. Yeah. But baiting and or feeding is present on nearly every single property I step foot on. No mm -hmm. kidding. Hmm. In the Southeast. And it's, it's crazy how, what is it? Alabama and Georgia in the last, decade both have mm -hmm. both have begun to allow that and mm -hmm. and the presence and the response of hunters that then just do that right i mean mm -hmm. the amount of acres and acres that are artificially supported by um corn piles and bait it has to and will impact and the research suggests greatly that it does influence um predator populations and bringing them and concentrating them into certain areas um, specifically, you guys were talking uh, with the gentleman at uh, on the Primos podcast here recently. Great, great podcast. But just that sphere and radius in and around the feeders that that did not have any success, right? From a <clears throat> nesting standpoint, it's it's huge. And when you look at that mm -hmm. across the distribution of those feeders and sites, um, like what, I guess in my opinion, when you have poor habitat, crummy habitat, right? Pine plantations, um, sure, they're in some different stages, but let's just call it what it is. Monoculture pine production in a lot of the Southeast, hardwood drainages, and then you're adding um, a, a bait site to, to every, let's just say 250 acres. What do we expect from turkey production? It's going to be crud. Like it's not mm -hmm. going to be productive whatsoever. And I think that we just need to have those honest realizations of truly what is limiting like on the landscape, focus on that narrowly and remove anything that is going to be um, detrimental to that production. If we want to be serious about producing more turkeys and having this future, we really need to stick to the numbers and focus our time and energy on what is producing birds and not just what is fun to see them on camera, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that is just because you see them on camera uh, uh, you know, coming to to a bait site. I mean, it's corn for crying out loud. It's a kernel of corn. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're going to come and pick it. But what are the other um, aspects of of the relationship of predators to prey to habitat? Now that there's a feeder on site, it's not this just clear linear thing. Well, turkeys are going to benefit because of the fact that there's a feeder there. We haven't talked about aflatoxins yet, right? Yeah, there's yeah. So many things to consider beyond just this. Hey there's a bait site and a turkey's picking corn. Cool. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're totally right. I mean, there's, there's, we, we kept referring to this 
as an onion. And we were peeling back the layers on that Primo's podcast because there are multiple layers. And, you know, one thing that we're not sure of is, you know, what is the mechanism? Okay, let me back up and say one thing we are sure of is that nest predation appears to be concentrated, occur at higher rates around feeders. But we're not exactly sure what the mechanism of that is. We don't know if it's just that you're just concentrating nest predator activity around those feeders, or if you're actually supplementing those nest predator populations by increasing survival and reproduction. But regardless, we know that it does decrease nest success to have a feeder present. Mm -hmm. Um, And Marcus, I think the exact number was in the Jones Center study where they used artificial quail nest, or they may have been real quail nest. No, it was Um, artificial. It was artificial. They found that it was about like when you looked at the radius within which nest success was affected by the presence of that feeder, it added up to about 50 acres, a 50 acre circle around that feeder throughout which nest success was heavily impacted. Well, and I'll also add another important point to that. They did a radius that works out to about 50 acres. That's 255 meters. I don't know how many yards that is. You can go do the math on that if you want to know, but <laughs> it's a it's a lot, you know, it's a pretty long distance. And they stopped there because they didn't think there was any reason to go further. That isn't mm. the f- measuring the full effect. They just didn't think there was any reason to get farther to, you know, measure the effect of the feeder on the nest. That's why they yep. stopped there. They said what- that in the paper. So, you know, that, that is like a minimum they saw, uh, I believe, uh, it was, they had, they simulated nests over a time period and they had 30 to 50% survival when it wasn't near a feeder and it fell below 20% for the entire, uh, distance that they measured when it was near a feeder, which was out to that 255 meters. Which so, oddly enough, it's like a pretty good spatial that a lot of landowners would do saying, hey, about every 50 acres or here, yeah. here, here. And it's like, oh man. Well, that that's one of the things that was striking to me is the density of feeders could be in many places, especially when you have a lot of small landowners, it could be a higher density than that one per 50 acres. So you yeah, literally, certainly. The, the hen cannot nest without being influenced if that translates into her her nesting success. And so. and you know, there's a lot of paper, paper company leases, timber company leases in the Southeast that, you know, the common thing is, well, I can't do habitat management. So they do feeders. Mm-hmm. And you almost wonder like what, you know, the few areas, the few loading docks that are early secession or might be early secession have a feeder on them. Mm-hmm. So it com- completely probably eliminates that from being a quality nest site or brood rearing site. So mm-hmm. it's just like that, that type of landscape probably is no wonder the turkeys are struggling on that. So I have one question yeah. for you. You through that throughout that podcast, you talked about the different layers of the of the feeding, the different layers of the onion. I'm asking you, and maybe I'm putting you on the spot. Of all the layers, is there a layer that is beneficial more than uh, negative impact? And a better question would be: out of all the research now that you've seen and different things. And you owned a farm specifically, you know, 500 acres. Is there a time of the year that you would feed or would you ever feed? If you're trying to maximize turkey production? You're just a landowner. you got recreational 
uh, activities you manage your quail, turkey, deer? You're thinking big picture. Well, you know, I think before you can answer that question, another important data point mm. to pull out is that we know the majority of that feed ends up in the belly of a raccoon, as Dr. Elmore yeah. said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the vast majority of that feed is not even going to the intended population. I think it's also important to distinguish the difference in, in baiting and feeding. You know, mm-hmm. spin cast feeders full of corn, uh, corn on the ground, corn in a trough, that's that's baiting right? Yeah. Um, you know, feeding is actually trying to meet the nutritional requirements of the species of interest at, a, at the time of the year that it needs it. Yep. And, you know, there's obvious benefits of supplemental feeding that we've demonstrated, especially for, for like white-tailed deer, uh, quail, for example, or another yep. one where it's been shown as beneficial, where they have these feed lines where they broadcast Milo. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, intuitively that would, pro- that p- would potentially benefit turkeys. Um, but we have, you know, no evidence that just baiting benefits those populations. And to take that a step further, um, one of the things that we've been really interested in is, you know, how do mass crops, particularly talking about acorns, potentially influence hen body condition, you know, and survival over the winter time, and then her body condition going into the reproductive season so that she can have higher quality, greater numbers of eggs, right? Um, and we've been talking about that some over the past week with Dr. Harper and he dug into the literature a little bit and he found a paper that had some data from West Virginia and I think it was Kentucky Marcus. Mm -hmm. And these were Southern Appalachian landscapes and they followed this population had a tremendous sample size of turkeys that they were monitoring and they found no correlation between mass crop size and vital rates of turkeys. And that's not saying that there's not one. Intuitively, you would think that there, that there is. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that acorns and corn have a very similar nutritional profile. And if in a study that includes a sample size of sometimes two to 300 birds a year, as it was in this study, they're not able to find a beneficial impact of, of acorn abundance on that population, who are we to think that we can go out and, you know, feed, you know, several hundred or even several thousand pounds of corn on a property a year and actually boost that population from the practice, especially when you consider all these negative side effects that come along with that practice. Yeah. I, I just don't think that we're at a, at a population density in most of these areas to suggest that, Hey, having one or a couple feeders on properties is going to be beneficial. I think there's, it's very easy and clear to just see, wow, this is going to be way more detrimental. I don't have the the luxury of hundreds of birds here to potentially lose a few. I need every bird that is healthy on the population to be trying to actively produce healthy nests and have a, a, a limited amount of predators, not congregation in and around my property. Um, so it, to me, it's just one of those activities that's like, why 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 do it why do yeah. it it's specifically at this at, at this time frame um on the landscape i just i i can't i can't get there in my brain that doesn't sit well in stomach and it doesn't make sense you know let's say just say common sense for your goals and objectives if you're trying to produce more turkeys on the landscape and i think that there's a difference in a mindset too of a lot of hunters, let's just say, need to get there. We've done a podcast that's been very, um, very popular of, are you a producer or are you, are you a consumer? 
and the, the difference of a lot of hunters need to adjust some their, their, their mindset and say, I need to be focusing on producing turkeys, not harvesting turkeys. Mm-hmm. And harvesting will come if we're focusing on producing turkeys. That's a known fact, right? Um, but we have to, our efforts don't necessarily just have to be around the consumption of them, what they're doing in the spring time frame. It's, it's how do we produce more of these things so we can enjoy them for years and years to come. And our activities should be focused around that aspect of them, not the harvest. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know what, I, a problem that I love is when I have to pick which direction to go to the t- gobbling turkey. Yeah, yes. like that's a really yes. nice problem to have. <laughs> and then you know what else? I screw up a lot. <laughs> so it's nice to have alternative. Birds. I need I need those alternative <laughs> birds. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, I think that's a, a great way to put it is trying to to think about it from a different perspective. And a luxury of being a really good turkey producer is you don't have to be as good of a hunter to be really successful. <laughs> That's one take on, but you know that, that that comes along with that. Like like you said, that that is, you know, it, it's a really great problem to have to not be able to 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 not know which turkey to go to. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and Matt, you know, I think that was, those are all you know really good points that you brought up, and it it inspired me to think about something else that we've been discussing lately. Um, that I think kind of represents another paradigm shift where you have so many of these turkey managers that are thinking about all the things that they need to do to benefit turkeys, you know, whether it be fire or, you know, some kind of herbicide, whatever, disking. Um, but th- we've already highlighted today two practices that you can just not do that we have, yeah. that we have scientific evidence that it'll show could help benefit your turkey population. We cannot, we cannot mow. You know, we mm-hmm. can avoid mowing, especially during the nesting and early brood rearing period, and we can avoid feeding corn bait. Um, and we have strong reason to believe that that would potentially benefit your population. For sure. And I mean, Adam, that's that's one thing that we talk to um, clients about a ton or, or working with their land managers um, is just that allocation of time. Where are you putting your time in? And then how can we say, okay, this doesn't have the benefit that you think it does. That's going to save you eight hours a week. Let's then translate that into X. Because one of the things that always comes up is, yeah, well, it just putting those burn lines in is tough. We're, 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 we're short on time or, you know, making sure we got enough time to be able to burn and hit those windows. So it's like, well, what are you spending your time on elsewhere across the property? Time management and resource management is absolutely huge when it comes to this. And you're, you're exactly right. There's a lot of things that you can do, but again, data today that was just shared suggests that producing early successional vegetation, which is not hard, a lot of annual weeds, bare ground, will go a long ways. And that's not terribly hard to produce. It just has to be intentional. And you have to intentionally set aside other practices that are going against the grain. And that will give you and free you up the time to be able to to honestly do what will make a difference. And I think we all have to be willing to and open-minded enough to say, okay, what I have been doing hasn't, maybe it's just been neutral, right? It hasn't been a positive. I don't care whether you can get there in your brain that's saying, hey, I'm negatively affecting turkeys or not. Let's just call it neutral. Well, don't do neutral things either. Let's just do things that we know are going to produce more turkeys. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was just uh, 
having this conversation. Well, you know, I think a lot of landowners too, they implement those practices because they don't know what else to do initially. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are the first things that come to mind, especially like putting out feed and trapping predators. Those are so intuitive. And they're, I think they're also ingrained in our psychology that we want to kill things that compete with us for food. Right. Yeah. That's, that's just part of, you know, human nature going back thousands of years. Um, But same with feeding. We we want to feed things that we want to eat. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, I think as a kind of a little brief anecdote I'll share that uh, really drives that point home at is that I was talking to one of my buddies. He's actually a biologist as well. Um, His family has some nice, a nice tract of land in North Carolina that they've been managing for deer and turkeys for a long, long time. And um, that, you know, and that state has this deeply rooted uh, history and tradition of baiting. And, you know, he, he and I were just having a conversation over text message the other day about how, he was like, man, I just feel like I've got, you know, my career and I've got my family and I've already got limited time to go out to the farm and do all these things that we need to do, whether it be burning or moving tree stands or, you know, all these, all these, you know, important quintessential things that we have to do to manage a hunted property. And he was like, man, if I could just take, get away from having to put out corn too, you know, because that is mm-hmm. so ingrained on that property for them to do that. And it's a tradition that they've done for, they've participated in. For a long time, he was like, I would just be so freed up to allocate that effort to other things. And, uh, you know, that's that's powerful to see people recognizing that after they listen to some of this information and hopefully result in that paradigm shift in their minds. I've never been more excited for the wild turkey and game species than what is occurring over the last few months. When I see guys who typically are more into the feed hunt kind of deal. And they're sharing podcasts that you guys have done research and they're sharing the numbers from research and research papers. Mm -hmm. And you think like we're to a point now where an everyday landowner is starting to digest and use research papers to implement on their farm. You know, we're starting to see a change. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like we're at the very beginning of that. And, you know, for, for years, we've heard about the great success story of the restocking of the wild turkey and how NWTF was founded and helping restock the turkey. And you're like, yeah, that was all great. But it's now on the downward spiral. So now the torch is in our hands. A lot of these researchers and, and biologists who helped with that restocking and all that are retired. And now it's on guys like you guys like me and Matt and everyday landowners who, you know, it's, it's our turn to try to correct what's happened over the last, you know, 10 years. And, uh, and the fact that there's so more, so much more research out there that's easily accessible is just like, I think it's good news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to Marcus about this the other day. I, I told him that, I don't want to see turkeys go the way quail did, especially when you think about it through the context of brooding cover being so limited. That's the same cover as we already discussed that's limited for quail. Um, But I think the difference that we have now versus when quail populations really started to decline is that we have this, you know, these hunters that are more educated than ever. There's still a lot of turkeys on the landscape and therefore you still have a lot of interest in hunting and managing for the species And so hopefully all that adds up to us being able to, you know, realize a different outcome in this situation. I'm hopeful. Yeah, no doubt. 
So out of all the Habitat podcasts you guys did, uh, the baiting podcast, you know, what were some of the key takeaways? Obviously, we talked about the, the lack of early succession plant communities, but was there anything else that really stuck out? Like, what should a listener, out of all that, if they, if they haven't had the chance to listen to the podcast yet, what are some of the key takeaways? Well, I, I think there have been several things that are striking, you know, uh, and we've already belabored several of them. One, you probably are in a situation where poult rearing cover is the or one of the principal limiting factors. You're probably in that situation just based on all of, you know, these researchers from they're measuring it in all these different places. That is a a big take home, and it's something that most people can address to some degree in whatever situation they're in, if they have any uh, influence over land management, e- even if it's very restricted, like uh, is the case on leaseholders often. Uh, but even another thing that I think Will and I both have, have through many conversations and, and uh, you know, having so much feedback from the audience, another thing that most people don't think through is that you know, we're trying to give you a best case scenario. And sometimes if you're a public landowner, that information, we're trying to get it to the person who has control over managing that public land that you have access to. And not being a barrier to that is one thing as the, the hunting community. But another aspect of that is being behind, okay, this is these are the kinds of things that need to be accomplished on the land that I like to hunt on this, you know, this public land, uh, and and being a an advocate for those kinds of activities with those managers, and even potentially volunteering or helping to you know uh, accomplish some of those things. I think that's something that we haven't talked about much. That that I think Will and I are starting to appreciate the importance of is whatever your context is in, like we have ways that we can influence what's going on. And that's not just by being a barrier to things you don't want to happen. It could also mm-hmm. be, a, you know, being an advocate for things you do want to see happen. So, uh, you know, that that's one really big take home that we haven't already belabored uh, that, I, that I think is important. Another thing we have some tendencies just as humans to latch on to some things. And, and I think too, that we have, Will and I have both uh, realized even more after going through all these episodes is two things that people really latch on to are predators and feeding, which we've talked a great deal about already. And Uh even, even when the focus of our content hasn't been on, the the predators it still somehow manages to be a dominant part of the conversation no matter what and uh you know thinking about what we've been talking about the fact that you could address predation in multiple ways even just that fact is pretty important for you to reflect on habitat might be your best way to reduce predation and that's often not the fun way you know, for a lot of people, I think that that's, a, you know, something yeah. to think about. And, uh, you know, th- those are some key takeaways that I've gotten from it, that it's really hard to, 
to uh, address some of these topics without a particular aspect of it dominating because we latch onto it, but also mm-hmm. kind of rethinking, like you were talking about earlier, uh, I think it was Matt that brought up that to be a a producer rather than than a consumer, mm-hmm. you know, changing that mindset also that that you can not just be a barrier but also an advocate, you know, that's a a good way to think. Yeah, yeah. You guys have tackled baiting and predators over the last month, so you might be the two most hated men in the South. You know that, right? <laughs> and, and season frameworks. <laughs> yeah, had season, season frameworks, frameworks yeah. in. Yeah. You know, we have definitely, you know, I, I really thought that we would be more of a target because of those, because we intentionally tried to cover the the sources of controversy, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. means that everybody's going to be mad at you because if you're balanced on it and tried to go through that conversation, both sides get mad. Yeah. And uh, instead, I don't feel like that's the way it's been with most people. They've been really supportive and appreciative that we've tried to give you a balanced overview and data-driven overview and trying to include all the points of view that are out there from different scientists when those exist and and you know get it all out there the whole discussion for you to hear the arguments from different perspectives i think that's something that has occurred with scientists in the room you know isolated from from non-scientists and now we're trying to make that a little more transparent so that you can understand why there are different arguments and discussions about I, these topics i've really enjoyed it from the standpoint of like specifically about trapping and predators you guys, researchers, having other researchers on, typically most people, you know, a, a pretty common opinion that I've seen and heard is that the researchers don't want that they don't want to accept that trapping has a benefit. And you guys have discussed it with other researchers and and acknowledged that trapping does have a benefit, but it comes after the habitat is being improved. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, Dr. Elmore and um, and even Craig Harper had talked about the benefits that they had seen, but they mm-hmm. emphasized that the habitat had to be improved first. And I think yeah. that's where you know, the two but, arguments, the two sides of that argument, both had to accept that, yeah, they acknowledged that I was correct, but there was some mm-hmm. variance in, in the delivery right. or in the implementation. Yeah, there, there's it's more complex than just uh, catch some raccoons and that equals more turkeys. Like that was the yeah. whole point mm-hmm. of that. And, you know, that's what we were trying to do. And I thought that we would get more negative feedback about it. But, uh, you know, it's been pretty overwhelmingly positive. That doesn't mean there's no negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people. most most of the critical messages we get, we also, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, I disagreed with you on this, but overall, like great information, keep it coming. Yeah, um, well, one of them we kind of got a. Neg- I pointed it out to Will. We got a negative uh, comment, like when they were rating our podcast. Yeah, which normally is paired with a poor rating. So they wrote the, this long dialogue about how little they appreciated some of the information, and then rated it five stars because we were trying to be as objective and thoughtful about the whole conversation. I was like, you must be doing something right in that case. No <laughs> you know, doubt. That's funny. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of the topics you guys have covered, um, 
they're kind of like that white elephant in the room for hunters. Like no one honestly wants to point it out. We're all very aware of mm-hmm. baiting and, and predators, right? And tra- like it all is, it's common sense, but no one really wants to just address it and talk about it. And then when guys like yourself, you know, produce a lot of content and it's research backed and then it's like, all right, they went there. We kind of knew it. Mm-hmm. Good job, guys. Wonderful. Now it's out. Let's all get on board. So, and that's why I think yeah. going back to what Adam said earlier, it's like, this is an exciting time. Like there's so mm-hmm. much information out. There is, there is a lot of research. We just need to turn that knowledge and research into application of, of in the field to make those changes. And it's happening. It really is. So keep going out there, guys. But it's like someone finally addressed it. Yeah. <laughs> talking about well, it. They I mean, it. that was really kind of the objective of the whole podcast at the outset. Marcus and I discussed it. We're like, you know, here's one, two, and three. These mm-hmm. are the things that, you know, people shy away from or, you know, they I like to step to around. It. I said, that is that is our niche. Like, that is where we're going. We're going to talk about things that a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about or they're not in a position that allows them to talk about that, too. Mm-hmm. And we told Turkeys for Tomorrow that, you know, when they initially agreed yeah. to sponsor the podcast, we said, we're going to share, we're going to address these controversial topics and we're going to use do it as objectively as we can and incorporate as much of the data as we can from the literature and you know we are, you know we want you guys to be aware of this up front and they said have at it yeah we nice. we were really careful i mean you guys know that you have to generate funding to, to support these kinds of efforts and we're we're very careful to try to do that in a way that allowed us to be completely open and free and when we had that discussion with Turkey Suramaro, I think Ron even said something along the lines uh, when we were talking about it. It's like the way I see it, and this is coming from, you know, paraphrasing what he said, but the way I see it is you guys need to stick to the data, whatever that is. And that's what needs to be said. And then everybody else needs to listen. And, and the, you know, he was including Turkey Suramaro in that. And I think they, you know, that we've already demonstrated that some of the, uh, you know, the things that we've said, probably some of those folks didn't like it, yeah. but they also acknowledged and, and have put their money where their mouth is to help us do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that these, some of these issues need to be addressed and they need to be addressed objectively and openly based on data. And I, I you know, Will and I have, have been talking about this for a long time that we really feel like that these these topics that people avoid regardless of what sector you're in like we need to address them directly mm-hmm. and and yeah. uh whether it makes us a target or not or whether it makes everybody mad or not you know they still need to be talked about as objectively and data driven you know as possible so hopefully we can continue to play that role yeah my Absolutely. dog still loves me at the end of the day. <laughs> I was going to say, well, if if it all goes to 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 just being completely uh, hated, you still have an open invite to come and hunt with us. So <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. good to know. I appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I that think... was a good wrap up for yeah. uh, this this part one of this podcast. Um, part two, we're going to dive into the predator thing more. And uh, so, yay, if you haven't, uh, that, that'll be fun. So <laughs> anyway, guys, we appreciate you listening and uh, we'll see you over on part two soon. Yeah.